Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts chapter 6. It was two weeks ago when we were last here. We are going through a study in the book of Acts. We uh, took a week off last week to focus on on missions, which actually the focus of our study in the book of Acts is mission. Missions is uh, foreign missions typically is how we think of that. But mission is the mission that Jesus gave us. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, He gave us a mission. You will be My witnesses. After the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Earlier in chapter 6, the apostles trying to deal with a problem with caring for widows, they have asked the people to select seven men from among themselves whom they lay hands on and commission and give them authority. That's verse 6. And verse 7, after that, it says that the, the Word of God continues to go out and that the number of disciples continues to multiply greatly in Jerusalem and even a great many of the priests are obe- became obedient to the faith. And then we come to verse 8. How long between verse 6 and verse 8, how long that period of things are going well, uh, we don't really know. Probably months, perhaps a year, is tied up in that little verse 7. The apostles planned to fix a benevolence problem. That's why they got these men involved. But God had a bigger plan. God intended to use these men greatly to advance the mission. And so what happens is that these seven men are chosen, they are commissioned, and they start to work. And five of those seven men we never hear about again. But two of those men become central to the story, Stephen and Philip. And their stories dominate the rest of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, and all of chapter 8. These two men, at least, now maybe all of the seven did, but it only talks about these two, that these two, they, they got involved in ministry far beyond caring for widows. They became powerful preachers and teachers. And as I said, God used them to advance the mission forward in its next steps to going global. Today we'll look at Stephen's story. Next week we'll see Philip's story. But Acts chapter 6, and we, we learn some things about Stephen. Stephen is a great man. As already noted, they chose these seven men, and these seven men that they chose, the apostles gave criteria. They said, choose from among yourselves seven men, men who are of good reputation, men who are filled with the Spirit, they are spiritual men, men who are, are full of wisdom. And so you can imagine if the church is, is somewhere between 20 and 1,000 people who make up the church in Jerusalem at this time. What a, what a massive group of folks. If they are looking for seven men of outstanding character, they have a lot of folks to choose from. And what an honor it would be to be one of these seven men who are chosen. They are definitely the cream of the crop. They are the top of the pile. Top shelf guys. Spiritual men, godly men, full of wisdom and great reputation. That says an awful lot about Stephen that he is one of the best 
Of all the church in Jerusalem, he is one of the best. Outstanding man. But there's even more than that because I'm convinced the more I read about Stephen that he is not just one of the best, he is the best of the best. A couple of things make me think that. When you look back in verse 5 of chapter 6, and you look at the list of men, you'll notice that it says, And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas. Seven men are listed and Two things make me think that, that this man is the best of the best. First, he's the first of the list. And usually we tend to order people by, and we tend to rank them, whether consciously or subconsciously, we often do, and the best gets kind of put to the front. Now maybe they, they listed them by social security number or alphabetical or whatever, but I don't think so. I think that Stephen gets to the front because he's the best. But there's something else that lets me know that. If you look at that list carefully, you'll realize that none of the other men have anything else said about them in terms of character except Stephen. It's like we just, Luke, as he's writing, just can't help but put down, there's a little more to say about this guy because everybody noticed it. I think he's that kind of guy. Not only is he outstanding in his reputation, his spirituality, and his wisdom, Stephen notes that he is full of faith. Full of faith means that he trusted God completely. No hold back, no reservations. He, God says that he believes it. He trusts in the Lord fully. Not only is he full of faith, he says he's full of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that he, he is out of control, flopping around the ground, that he is, you know, some kind of ecstatic kind of thing, but it says full of the Spirit, it simply means that He is controlled completely. He is completely yielded to the Spirit. He is in obedience and in submission to the Holy Spirit. You could think of Him as that when a glove is filled with a hand, the glove does whatever the hand desires, right? And the glove doesn't even think about it. It just moves with the hand. And that's what Stephen is. The Holy Spirit moves and Stephen is moving and doing whatever the Holy Spirit desires. He's a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. What an outstanding guy this was. But then there's one more characteristic of him that we find and it's down in verse 8. As we get into today's passage and it says, And Stephen... Full of grace. Full of grace. One more outstanding character quality that really should describe all of us. Every one of us have received abundant, outlandish, amazing grace. That's what we picture here at the communion. You and I are saved if we're, if we're trusting in Jesus Christ. We are saved from sin. We, are, we have new life. We have eternal life. We're headed for heaven. And it's not because you deserve it. And it's not because I deserve it. It is all about grace. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Like you. As all of us who have received amazing grace, that should be something that flows out of us. <laughs> but the reality is it doesn't always. How do we know if we're somebody who's full of grace? What is it to be full of grace? 
I think of a tube of toothpaste. When you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, what comes out? You know, this isn't a hard question. It's not a trick question. Let me try this again. When you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, what comes out? Thank you. <laughs> I thought the first group was slow. but uh... <laughs> If you're full of something, that's what comes out when you get squeezed. If you want to know what's inside of you, what comes out when you get squeezed, and I'm speaking metaphorically, not physically, when you are squeezed, when, when the pressure of life gets turned on, when things don't go your way, when life gets difficult and you get squeezed, what comes out? Is it grace? That was Stephen. When the pressure came, what's, when he was squeezed, what came out was grace. You see it, and we'll see it a little later in the end of chapter 7. As Stephen has been cast into a pit and stones are being hurled at him, hitting him with tremendous force, probably breaking bones. In his last breath, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's someone who's full of grace. I contrast that with another man of God in the Scripture. You go back to Second Chronicles in chapter 24. There's a, a prophet by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah has been grabbed by a bunch of ungodly people who, who start to stone him to death. And as he is being hit with stones, what comes out of his mouth is, May the Lord see and avenge. In other words, God get him good. When you get squeezed, what comes out of you? This is how I know I'm not a man full of grace. The other day we're in the McDonald's drive-thru and some guy just pulls up and goes ahead of all of us and goes and jumps in in his car. And the words I was thinking was, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. That was not my thoughts. I'm not a man of grace. But Jesus was. Jesus, when His executioners were hanging Him on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Stephen was a man of grace. May God grow that in me and in you. He was a great man. One of the best. One of the best of the best. A man of faith. A man of, of grace. He also was a man who not only was a great man, but he had a great ministry. Pick it up in verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and some of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was full of power. It says he was doing great wonders and signs. God was working miracles through Stephen. Just a little side note that, that uh, you can look through the New Testament. You can look at this early church and look and you will see that the only people 
who are specifically mentioned in the Scriptures as working, performing miracles other than the apostles are Stephen and Philip and possibly Barnabas over in Acts chapter 15 and verse 12. And that's it. That's just... Anyway, it's a freebie. Side, side note. He was full of power. God was doing great things through, through him. Not only that, though, he had a passion for mission. It appears that Stephen was branching out. At the end of chapter 5, last verse of chapter 5, it says of the apostles that every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The apostles are preaching and teaching in the temple and they are teaching and preaching from house to house, which may mean they're, they're going door to door, doing door to door evangelism, but more likely it means that they are doing regional Bible studies in, in homes and houses around the area of Jerusalem and in the suburbs. And so when they're not in the temple teaching, they're out in the houses. But it seems that Stephen here is doing something different. Historians tell us that in the city of Jerusalem at this time, there were some 480 synagogues. There's the big temple in Jerusalem, but there's also these little, we would think of them as churches, small churches. Many of these synagogues, history says, were dedicated to the Grecian Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, the foreign Jews who had come to Jerusalem. And as they would come there, some of them to live, uh, others to just for pilgrimage and to be there for the feast, they had these synagogues where they could go and they could worship and they could study and they could fellowship with others who would speak their language and others who would be acquainted with their customs and their way of doing things. And so it says here that Stephen was speaking with those who were from these Greek, these Grecian synagogues those who were from the synagogue of the freedmen and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, the Cilicians, the Asians. In other words, it seems that he was going to places where the apostles were not. seems as though Stephen, when he kind of got the thing with the widows done and he started ministering and preaching, he started looking for, where's the hard places to go? Where's the places where, where they may not be hearing what the apostles are teaching? I can go to some of the synagogues. And as a Grecian Jew, I'm going to go to the Grecian synagogues. And he goes there and it'd be kind of like all the welcome reception you'd get if you went to a union hall around the St. Louis area to talk about right to work. And there he goes, and it wasn't a welcome reception. They started. It says that these men started disputing with him. He would say, the Christ is Jesus. And they go, no, He's not. And he'd go, let me take you to some Scripture. Here, let me take you to Isaiah. And he would work their way through Scripture and he would reason and argue and dispute and, and debate. And it says they couldn't stand up against His arguing, His teaching. So they, they decide, well, we got to shut this guy up. So they take this... Stephen, who has, is full of power and has passion for mission and who has powerful teaching, and they look to shut him up in a rigged trial. Uh, we don't have time to read it. It's all of chapter 7, or almost all of chapter 7, verse 1 through... Well, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's read the end of chapter 6. Because it says, verse 11, they secretly instigated 
men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. If you take some time to really look through that, you'll notice so many parallels to the trial of Jesus Christ. A rigged trial taken to the Sanhedrin with, with false witnesses and accusations of blasphemy. Chapter 7, Stephen responds to the question of the chief priest in verse 1 of chapter 7 where the chief priest says, are these things so? It's a yes-no question, but he doesn't give a yes-no answer because there really isn't a yes-no answer. And so Stephen begins to tell the history of Israel. He lays it out in a very bold and a very powerful sermon that has three big thoughts. And I'll just very quickly stick them out before you and uh, because we don't have time. Fifty-three verses this sermon goes on. And uh, he, he can outdo me in going long. So we'll try to shorten it up. First, he says obedience to God often involves change. God always does what God says He will do, but He often does it in ways we would never expect. And if you and I are going to follow God in obedience, it will often involve us doing things we never thought we would do and going places we never thought we would go. Secondly, God is not bound by geography. God gave the nation of Israel, the land of Israel to the Jews as a blessing, but God's work and His God's presence and God's blessing is not limited to a land or to a temple. And thirdly, he says that Israel has a history of rejecting God's men and God's program. From Joseph, who, whom the other brothers rejected him as God had set him apart and said the others were going to bow before him. They couldn't stand him. They, they rejected him and they sold him into slavery. And yet God used him to save the brothers and the family and ultimately the nation. God sent Moses to, pull, to rescue the nation from slavery in Egypt and they resisted Moses. They rejected him. And then he says to all the prophets, they resisted every one of the prophets. Then the trial takes a very unexpected twist. As suddenly the accused, the one who is on trial, turns the tables and he, in verse 51, says this. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. The man who was on trial just accused the judge and the jury of murder. He put them on trial. And they had no defense. And it says, verse 54, they were enraged and they began gnashing their teeth. 
They're gritting their teeth and they're so angry. And they're starting to snarl. And as Stephen is standing there with this this group that's just getting madder and madder, he looks up. And God pulls the curtain back. And Stephen sees in verse in verse 55, he sees a glimpse of heaven. He sees the right hand. He sees the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father. He gets so caught up in it, he loses himself, and he just he says, "Behold," which is Bible talk where for hey guys, look, look, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the, of the Father, the right hand of God, and that just sends him over the top. These guys don't know what to do and they go ballistic. You see, they've heard something like this before. If you go back to the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is standing before these same guys on trial, Jesus says these words, but from now on, the Son of Man, His favorite title, by the way, to describe Himself, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they get the picture and they ask, Are you then the Son of God? And Jesus replied, You are right in saying that I am. And they said at that moment, We don't need to get anything else. He is a blasphemer. Let's kill him. That's what they said about Jesus. And now as they have Stephen before them, he says, You killed Jesus, who was the Messiah, and all of a sudden, he's seeing this vision. He says, look, guys, heaven, and there's the Son of Man at the right hand of God. And these men, verse 57 says, it says they, they start screaming, la, 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 and putting their fingers in their ears. La, 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 we can't hear you, we can't hear you, as they're running at him. <laughs> and they want to shut him up. So they grab him. At the end of chapter 7, Stephen becomes the first martyr. They grab him. They haul him outside of town. They were enraged. They, uh, verse 57, they cried with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You think, surely this man, this likable, winsome, godly, wise man who is full of grace, a gifted leader, an excellent preacher, an effective debater. He is the best of the best. Surely God will rescue this man. We wait for a Roman SWAT team to show up, a riot squad to come and break up the crowd and stop them, but they don't. We wait for maybe God to send an angel or an earthquake Something and and nothing happens. Stephen dies a brutal death. Stephen stands at the head of a long line. The first of millions through the centuries who will follow him 
into dying for their faith in Jesus. In fact, so many witnesses for Jesus were killed in these first couple of centuries of the church that the Greek word for witness changed in meaning. The Greek word for witness is martus. It just meant to be a witness in a courtroom. or But it changed and it came to mean someone who dies for Jesus. Which is why our English word martyr, which came from the Greek word, means to die for your faith. It's because so many of our brothers and sisters did as witnesses of Jesus. So many martyrs for Jesus through the centuries in our day, they say that more people have died for the name of Jesus in the last hundred years than in the last in all of the last centuries combined. It happens today, which is why we have this day to remind us to be praying for those who are experiencing what we are not. Persecution and suffering for Christ. Let us pray with them. But it raises a question. Whenever we look at suffering, whenever we look at martyrdom, it raises the question, is Jesus worth it? I understand that's the central question of this movie, that this film we're showing this Wednesday, The Insanity of God. I haven't seen it, but I've heard good things about it. I hope you'll come and join us and let's watch it together. As I wrap this up very as quickly as I can this morning, I just want to point out three things as I look at Stephen here. Three things in this Example of Stephen that answer this question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to live for Jesus or to die for Jesus? The answer is yes. Let me point out three things here in the text which show that. The first is this truth, this reality. Death is not to be feared for the believer in Jesus Christ. Would you look at that last verse of this chapter? Look at his death. It says, when he, Stephen, had said this, he fell asleep. That actually is the most amazing and unusual word to describe somebody who's dying by stoning. Stoning is a most brutal way of death. It doesn't say he was crushed, he was ripped apart, he was he expired under the weight of the stones. It doesn't describe it as some brutal or some some... It says he fell asleep. I believe that the that Luke is trying to get a point across that Stephen's death, in the midst of this evil, in the midst of this brutality, his death was peaceful. I wonder how can you die a peaceful death in a situation like that? A lot of people who die very unpeaceful deaths in normal circumstances. How is it we can face death with peace? Well, it's knowing that we're not alone. See, Stephen is not alone. He knows that God has said that He will always be with us. 
He knows Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it goes on to say, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The writer of Hebrews says it like this, He, Jesus, has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Stephen had seen Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is usually depicted as seated. One pastor wrote this, he said, Jesus always stands with those who stand for Him. I think there's truth in that. What it means is that Jesus rises and gives us the grace we need for whatever situation we face when we are standing for Him. Second reality and a truth that goes along with this, why death is not to be feared, is that not only are we not alone, but death is not the end. Verse 59 In chapter 7, Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What he understood is death is not the end of Stephen. Death is not the end for us. Death is immediately going to be with Jesus. Stephen isn't dying. He's going to be with Jesus, you see. The Apostle Paul said that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is no intermediate time, no, no little lag here between the two. For the moment that our, we take our last breath, that very second we are in the presence of Jesus. Death isn't the end, it's the beginning of real life. I love that old quote by D.L. Moody. Someday you will hear that you read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am today. And that is the reality for the believer in Jesus Christ. Death is not to be feared. But not only is death not to be feared, heaven awaits us. Stephen got a little glimpse of heaven there in the middle of that courtroom and it captivated him. Because heaven is our glorious destiny. Heaven is a promotion to something greater and better than anything that we know. Matter of fact, more than anything we can imagine. I think one of the great problems that you and I have as believers, I think, is that we think too little of heaven and we think too much of earth. I think that many of us fear somehow that heaven is going to be a letdown. It's going to be a whole lot better than hell. Is it really going to be better than earth? I mean, I kind of like this place. It's beautiful and it's fun most of the time, some of the time. And there's good things here and I like things here and I can go wakeboarding here and snow skiing and heaven, we're just going to sit around and play harps and worship God. Oh, it's going to be an everlasting church service. Oh no! That is wrong thinking. It is not the reality. 1 Corinthians 2.9, as it's written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. We simply can't imagine how good heaven is going to be. You can put every bit of effort you can into it and you can't think big enough and great enough and marvelous enough and wonderful enough. Jesus is going to be there. The lover of our souls. Our Redeemer, our Savior, our Friend, our Creator. 
you're going to want to hang out with Jesus. Not only is Jesus there, there's beauty, there's wonder. There's a new earth. It's not just all in the clouds. There's a new earth. We're going to be busy. We're going to be productive. There will be no sickness. There will be no death. There will be no war. There will be joys we can't imagine. So the Apostle Paul says, Earth, heaven. I'd so much rather be in heaven, but I'm going to stay here for you guys for now. (laughs) Be excited about heaven. Is Jesus worth it? Yes, because death is not to be feared. Heaven awaits us and it's outstanding and it's forever and it's perfect. And thirdly, because God brings about good. God always, always, always uses the suffering and even the death of His saints to bring about good. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. What happened good out of this death of Stephen? For us, it looks like such a tragedy and such a waste. But God was busy doing a couple of things. Two of them show up here in the passage. One is, you look back up in verse 58 and it says, and the witnesses at the stoning of Stephen, they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 1 of chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution. He witnessed the whole thing. In my, my guess, and I could be wrong, but I fall in line with lots of others who just surmise that Saul may have been the one who instigated this whole thing. Stephen was going into the synagogues, the Greek synagogues, preaching Jesus. And among the folks who rose up and started arguing and debating with him were folks from Cilicia. Saul was from Tarsus, which is a city in Cilicia. And it's just likely that Saul, a good Jew, is in the synagogue with the Cilicians. And there comes this guy preaching about Jesus. And he starts debating him. And Stephen out-debates Saul. told you Stephen was top shelf. He can't stand it. And these guys can't stand it. And so he, they, they seek to take this guy out. If you can't beat him, beat him. Physically. Take him out of the picture. How else do we know what happened in secret? That's my question. It could be the Holy Spirit reveals it to Luke. Or it could be that Saul, now Paul, says, Luke, as you're writing this history of the early church, let me tell you what we did to Stephen. Let me tell you how this went down. That's what I think happened. See, what is going on in this tragic, from our vantage point, execution of such a wonderful man is that seeds are being planted in a cold heart that in a few chapters will spring up And as this great preacher dies, God is preparing the great preacher who will carry the good news to the Gentiles. There's one other thing that happens. Verse 4 of chapter 8, this is the last thing. Verse 4 of chapter 8 says, Now those who were scattered, the church, as the persecution ramps up, all of these twenty to 30,000 believers in Jerusalem start scattering like Texas cockroaches when the light goes on. And they leave Jerusalem. 
What was the mission? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We saw chapter 5 last week. The, the enemies of the church said, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Phase 1 done. Time for phase 2 to take place. How's it going to happen? God says, turn up the heat and the believers start running. Where the apostles were doing most of the evangelism and the preaching and then at least these two Guys, Philip and Stephen start doing preaching and teaching. Now all of a sudden it says, look at the rest of verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Sometimes it takes a lot to get us moving and opening our mouths about Jesus, doesn't it? We could stand some scattering today. The Gospel went out. God brought good. Oh, there's that famous quote from Tertullian. You know it well. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so it is. It is as believers get persecuted that the gospel goes out. I have a great story in conclusion. I'm out of time. Do you have time for just a quick story? Okay, if you don't, you can leave. That's okay. and Nobody will think anything bad. But I won't think anything bad. I don't think they will either. Quick one. Two centuries ago, the northern regions of India, known as Assam, were populated by hundreds of violent tribal groups. In the late 1800s, there was an explosion of evangelistic activity in India. Missionaries from outside the, the country and, and Indian evangelists they rose up and they, they started to reach up into the northern regions, the Assam region of India. Dangerous work. Dozens of missionaries lost their lives trying to reach these headhunting tribes, these violent people in the north. There was one Welsh missionary who was working in a particularly brutal village. Finally, after such a long time, he he finally saw some fruit. There was one family, a husband, a wife, and two kids who placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That young family started sharing the good news of Jesus with others and the tribal leaders were, were furious that this good news of Christ was being, was being propagated and they, they sought to make an example of this family and they drug them in before the, the village leaders and there they demanded that they cease talking about Jesus and that they renounce Jesus Christ. And the family refused. So the leaders turned to the Father and they threatened Him, renounce Christ or we're going to kill your family. And the family again refused and then they took the two children and executed them in front of the mother and father. The leaders threatened again, renounce Christ or we're going to kill your wife. And again, they refused and the wife was executed. And they said to the man, renounce Christ or we will kill you. And he refused. So they killed him as well. But it was a very short time after that, the village leaders, the chief, they were so moved by the courage and by the faith of this family that they thought there must be something to this Jesus. And the more they thought and looked, they, they very shortly all became believers in Jesus Christ. And that whole village became followers of Jesus. 
word of this family began to spread throughout India. And particularly of the last words of this man, which were so powerful that somebody took them and put them to music. And it began to be sung in the churches around India. It was almost 50 years later that the song made its way across the oceans and showed up in the United States and made its way into our hymnals in the 1950s. You'll know this song well. You hear the words. When that man was ordered to renounce Christ, the man declared, I've decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. When they threatened his family with death, he said, though no one go with me, still I will follow. There's no turning back. After his family was executed and he was next, he said, the cross before me, And the world behind me, no turning back. I don't know that any of us will ever be called on to die for Jesus. Maybe some of us will. Probably most of us won't. The real question before all of us today is, will we live on mission for Jesus? Will we do as Jesus has asked us to do as His followers, to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow Him? That's the question.